Hello and welcome to Vulgar Vulgarities, the show that has its death finger on popular culture. I'm Bottom Thomas, and tonight we're joined by musician, writer, and human being, Ringo Starr, who's here to tell us all about the latest track by the Beatles, Helter Scouter. Hello, Ringo. Do I have to do the accent? Because I, I can't promise you, Ringo, I can have a stab at Wacko from the Animaniacs. Of course you've got to do the accent. Just pretend that everything you're saying is going to mention Thomas the Tank Engine. <clears throat> so, Mr. Star, what's this new song about? Well, you'd have to ask, Paul. I can tell you about the writing of Don't Pass Me By, Fat Controller. I think our listeners, Mr. Star, are much more interested in the scout of the Hauser. Is it true it's named after an amusement park ride? I believe so. It's on Sodor, I think. Now, could I get you to tell me what is meant by the following? When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. And I stop, and I turn, and I go for a ride, till I get to the bottom. Well, once again, you'd have to ask the fat control... I mean, Paul McCartney, which is his name... Now, the song also features the following lyrics. Will you, won't you, make me to make you want you? I'm coming down fast, but don't let me break you. Tell me, tell me, tell me the answer. You may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Is this a coded message about a coming race war? No, no, not at all. Now, when I was narrating... Tom because certain people seem to think it is, Mr. Stir. What do you say to them about that? It's just a song about a roller coaster. So it's not a coded message about a coming apocalypse in which racist and non-racist white people will be manoeuvred into killing one another over the treatment of African Americans. No, it's about sitting on an amusement park and maybe getting off while riding the Big Dipper. So... Do you, don't you, want me to love you? I'm coming down fast, but I'm miles above you. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Come on, tell me the answer. Doesn't refer to a disused mine shaft outside of LA. No. Well, I'm unconvinced, and we've run out of time. Join me next week when I press Benny Anderson to explain the metaphysics of how someone can be more than a woman. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison. Sitting next to me, hydrating, hydrating responsibly on a sunny Auckland day, is Dr. M. R. X. Denton. It's true, I am filled with liquid. Mm. It's summer, all of a sudden. It really is. It's, it's gone from being miserable to being quite warm and delightful. And then to being briefly freezing again and then warm again, which is why I had a head cold last week, which is why we we're recording this episode uh, a little bit late. But it's sunny now, which is why I'm wearing short trousers. Now, short trousers aside, we should probably explain what happened last week, because last week's episode was a bit different. It was Josh, a little bit. why was last week's episode so different? Uh, well, because you and I were at the movies. We were. What were we watching? We were watching, what was it? It was Thursday, so we were watching Ready or Not, which is an excellent film that you should all go and watch. Now, this was part of the Terrify Horror Science Fiction Thriller Movie Festival happening out in Avondale, and it's true, Ready or Not was a very good mm. film. Except that I would say was probably 
the not the worst film of the festival but the second worst film because the other films were so good it kind of paled in comparison <laughs> really i'm glad yeah. all i saw was the uh adaptation of hp lovecraft's the color out of space starring nicholas cage which is less racist than the original yeah. and that's always going to be positive is that one so racist i mean there's, no, there's always there's, there's, there's the a, undercurrent yeah. of racism and all of hp lovecraft's stuff but i don't remember that one being there's particularly... a little bit of talk about how certain people can't settle in those woods oh, out the back of okay. uh, around the Miskatonic because yeah, they have the right kind of temperament. So there's a little bit of anti-Italian, anti-Spanish racism okay. going on there. Well, there would yeah. be. But anyway, the point is we were off seeing a movie, uh, but fortunately we, we had one in the can. We do, we've a couple got, in the can. Yeah, and, and there, may, there may be more in the can. We'll put some more in the can after we finish putting this yeah, one in the can. Once you, once you take one out of the can, you have to put another one back in the yeah, can because otherwise, otherwise we get the dread god very, very angry. Mm, yes, no, we operate on a take one, leave one policy with our, with our can. Yes. It's a very, it's, it's, it's a very special can. Mm. But enough about cans. Enough about cans. We've had reader correspondence. We've had actual people talk to us. Now, one of these is a correction. When we talked two weeks ago now, and this was in, I think, in the... The, the news the, episode. Yeah, the news yeah. Ep episode, and talking about the interesting case of the... Australian politician attacking the Australian mayor about a discrepancy in the budget which turned out to be fake. Now, we actually didn't realise that Clover Moore, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, identifies as a woman, and also we weren't aware that the Daily Telegraph in Australia is not the Daily Telegraph in the UK. Because we're completely unaware of what happens in well, Australian yes. politics. Mm. And don't don't really care to know, to be honest. But, but we okay. do care to be corrected mm. yes. when we get things wrong. So thank you very much, Eric. Precisely. Uh, and we've had a, so we, we had a comment left for us on Breaker. I don't know what Breaker is. It appears to be a podcast app. Right. Because I, I have noticed that we, we sort of made a point of sticking this podcast on a few of the more well-known ones, but then it just, every, everyone scrapes everyone else, and so it ends Yeah, up. and it seems that Breaker as a podcast app service also records the number of subscribers on the service. So we know there are two subscribers on Breaker, La one of which is... Maria, who left us a very kind comment, and also noted that she really liked the sketch at the beginning of the previous episode, the one that we took from the can, that we're putting a new one in the can, to make so the Dread God piece. doesn't need to get angry with us. Ooh. So sketches might be coming back due to one positive, co positive comment. That's literally all it takes. That is how slim and fragile our egos are. Yep. A single bit of and positive feedback and we will change heaven and Every listener and listener Ooh. feedback is to us and our fragile, fragile egos. Yes. So anyway, let's, uh, let's, I, I think that's all we had to say up, up the top, in the front, up the front. Up the bottom. Up the kyber. Uh, so we should move on to the main part of the episode. We should indeed. Going to go back to the swingin' 60s slash early swingin' 70s. And talk a little bit about murder. Mm. Because that's what the 60s was all about. Swinging and killin'. Shouldn't try to make, make that rhyme. Swingin' and killin'. Swingin' killin'. and... Swingin' and... <laughs> no, there isn't no, it doesn't work. There isn't a good uh, one. On with the show. The 60s, Josh, what do you remember about it? Uh, I remember mostly being sort of negative 14 to about negative four years old. Those are, those are the worst years in a person's life. 
negative six years old, I did it the wrong way. Um, yes, no, I was not actually around for any of the 1960s and only part of the 1970s, so I did not witness firsthand anything to do with the Charles Manson family murders, which is what we're talking about Or at least today. so Josh claims. At least so I claim, yes. The, the, or the, as I believe people like to refer to them, the Tate LaBlanca murders, because they, I think they sort of want to say, you know, the, the, the victims are the important ones, not the yes, psychotic not the actual, assholes yeah. who actually killed them, yes. Um, but so you probably know, uh, late 1969, Charles Manson, who had formed himself a nice little cult, um, talked a bunch of his followers into running off and quite nastily murdering a few people over the course of a couple of nights, including uh, sort of the one who gets the most press, obviously, being actress Sharon Tate, who was very heavily pregnant with Roman Polanski's child at the time. So it was a particularly particularly gruesome and grisly crime. Um, Manson himself was clever enough, I guess you'd say, to not actually participate in any of those killings. Though apparently he had 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 a hand in an earlier murder or something like that. But he was sort of at arm's length. But but nevertheless, because it had all happened at his behest, he ended up going uh, going down along with the rest of them and uh, remained so, in so prison until there was, his death he, a couple there was of years a kind ago. of co-conspirator charge. So they mm. say you didn't commit the murder. But you were the motivating force, so yes. you basically co-conspired in the crime, and we can get you on that particular charge. Mm. Um, so the, the trial, I think, was 1970. Uh, yeah, late 69, trial in 1970. Uh, in 1974, a man by the name of Vincent Bugliosi, who was the pr uh, prosecutor in the case, then wrote this sort of tell-all book called Helter Skelter about the killings. Um, and in this book, he talks about sort of Manson and his wacky views and all of that. And, and, and it was it's called Helter Skelter in reference to the Beatles song Helter Skelter, which Manson claimed had hidden messages. Yes, which has always been a kind of very contentious part of this, because mm. Helter Skelter as a song, as the opening sketch indicates, is actually about an amusement park ride. Uh, Paul McCartney's interest was in writing a really aggressive, raucous song. But the actual lyrics themselves, which is actually kind of par for the course for McCartney, are actually fairly banal. It's the the composition is interesting, the lyrics not so much. But Charles Manson heard the song, and for him there was a kind of resonance here that basically talked about a coming race war, yeah. which would be predicated on racist white Americans fighting with non-racist white Americans about the treatments of African Americans in the US, which would be engineered such that when the race war ended, Manson would be able to present himself as being the one true ruler, or at least have a role in what happened afterwards. And that rather than wait for the coming race war, Manson wanted to start it now. Mm. So the murders that the Manson family engaged in were all designed to kick the race war off so that Manson could get his end goal of them being able to have power after the race war. Yes. And he all gets this from a song well, about riding an amusement park ride. 
Yes, I'm not, sure, least, I'm not sure if, yeah. he, if he specifically got it from the song, but he thought the song was had contained coded messages, which meant that the Beatles were thinking on the same la- wavelength as him. Although, yeah. of course, there's always been suggestion that maybe this was a convenient excuse because it was a point in time where people were willing to blame music for... And actually, so it was a point in time. People still blame yes. music to this day. Uh, completely unrated to this, but the most recent season of Slow Burn, the podcast that dealt with the Watergate affair and then the Clinton impeachment trial, the third season is dealing with Tupac and Notorious B.I.G., which means we may need to do a review of this podcast. I think we will. Uh, And that's, once again, blaming music Mm. for cop killing in the US. Yes. Um, Yes, I mean, according to the book Helter Skelter, Manson and his followers were all out of their skulls on LSD. They were drugged up, lunatic, cultist, crazy people who believed in this this insane plan, which, I mean, yeah, he sort of... He, he thought there's, there's going to be a race war, white Americans versus uh, racist white Americans, non-racist white Americans, and also African Americans, and he seemed to think that... African Americans would win the war, but then they would, Manson and his followers, who were all white, would emerge from their bunker in the middle of the desert, and then they would naturally rule over the African Americans to whom they were superior, despite the fact that they would also obviously win the war. It, 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 it didn't make a lot of sense, but that was, that was to be uh, expected because they were all crazy LSD nutcases. Especially when you're getting your plans from popular music. Yes, now, now, that's, that's the, the, the quote unquote official story. Uh, more recently, earlier this year, a journalist by the name of Tom O'Neill released a book called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Now, I found out about this because I was listening to Radio New yes, Zealand one morning. Yes, he gave an interview on RNZ. As, as befits my bourgeois nature. And I actually came in halfway through this particular interview with the journalist in question and went, this seems like it's right up our it really alley. does. And then several months later, we're recording a podcast about it. Mm. So O'Neill first started looking into the Manson murders uh, 20 years ago, I think he said. He worked for a music magazine, I think, and they wanted to do a story. He started investigating it. The story he originally uh, was going to write never got published, but he sort of got sucked into weird inconsistencies or, or illogicalities that he kept finding. Logicality, that's a new word and I like it. Yeah, made sense to me. Uh, he and, and, and so has been investigating and investigating and coming up with questions that, that people don't seem to want to answer and so on. So he's finally questions got his, that they don't mm, want you to know about. He's finally got his book out, which he hopes might maybe bring a little more attention to it and maybe bring what he believes might be closer to the truth. Uh, to light. Um, so basically, he, he says that... Have to... we actually not noted the book's name down in our notes at all? Yeah, I, I just said it. Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the blah, blah, blah. Can't you to listen to you when you're well, talking? Well, obviously. Yeah, so O'Neill, O'Neill claims that the Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, is, is basically not true. It's, that it, it um, is a load of, uh, a bunch of lies, at the very least about Manson himself. Um, he certainly believes that Manson, while his followers were drugged out crazy people, uh, believes that Manson himself probably wasn't. Uh, O'Neill refers to an interview Bugliosi did years ago. Bugliosi is now dead, I think. Uh, um, 
he gave an interview. Uh, someone asked him, did the Manson family really believe all that Helter Skelter stuff? And he sort of replied, well, at least the woman did. So sort of fr fr from, from some time ago, there's sort of been insinuations that maybe Manson wasn't the, the drugged out lunatic that uh, Helter Skelter portrayed him as. Um, and so O'Neill was looking into some things that just stuck out as, as being difficult to explain in the whole Manson case. So first of all, there are a few different things. One of them is the fact that Manson seemed to keep getting away with stuff. Yeah, so prior to the murders, he had been jailed for almost half his life for crimes such as burglary, car theft, prostitution, sexual assault, and yet after his release in 67, he never got called up on the numerous parole violations that he engaged in. Mm, yes, I mean, at the time of the murders, he was on parole. Um, and had and done breaking it and, and breaking laws all over the damn place. Yeah. Um, so uh, O'Neill points to a few weird things. One of them is that apparently his parole officer, whose name I did not note down, uh, was a, was a person who at one point had had sort of forty parolees that they were looking after, but eventually that dwindled to just one. There was just this one. The, this guy was purely looking after Charles Manson and no and one not else. doing anything and about Charles Manson. Actually, I mean, you could understand if you had forty parolees and one of your parolees turns out to be Charles Manson and is breaking parole all the time. You're going, I don't have time for this. I've got 39 mm. other people. I mean, yes, you jaywalk. Don't do that again. I don't want to see your name in my files. Oh, God, Charles, you're in it again. Oh, you've robbed a convenience store. Oh, for the love of God, I've got 39 other mm. people I've got to be dealing with. But when it goes to, so uh, you're my only charge... Yes, it makes it harder to explain. Yeah, it and really also, does. I think possibly the insinuation was that this guy had been specifically assigned to Manson to turn a blind eye, or I don't know what. But there, I mean, because there are things like before the Tate LeBlanca killings, the entire Manson family, the entire compound, had been raided. They'd all been arrested. And they were all on charge of like Grand Theft Auto and a few other things. And they were all released without charge. Now, in Helter Skelter, apparently, Bugliosi claims that they were released because the warrant for their arrest uh, was improperly dated. I think it hadn't been filled in correctly, so they had to release them. Uh, O'Neill claims that he went back and went through the archives and found this original warrant and that it was not dated incorrectly, that it was perfectly fine. So he claimed that... Um, that that excuse doesn't doesn't hold water, and he also claims that at the time Manson was picked up, he had on his person a bunch of stolen credit cards, and credit card theft is a federal crime, I think. He so even even though the initial arrest might not even if it hadn't been legit, they still had the ability they they could have charged him on the spot with those crimes, or even just ignored those crimes, but. You know, not charged with anything new, but pulled him back to prison for violating yeah. his parole for the crimes yeah. he'd already been convicted of. And this does seem a bit weird mm. when you start adding this into the story. You are going, so why was Manson getting special treatment? Now, conversely, we're dealing with one case here and what was probably a system of or a system of bad decisions being made across the county in general. So you would want to compare Manson's treatment with other criminals of a similar stature at that particular mm. point in time. Because on one level, it seems this is a very notable failing when it comes to famed mass murderer Charles Manson. 
but it may turn out to be not a notable failure when you talk about parolee violations at that particular yes, point. Yes, I don't time. know. Maybe where the police just so overworked, they're like, "What? Okay, whatever. Get out of here. Got got bigger fish to fry or something." So yeah, we don't. So I mean, the implication O'Neill wants to put forward is that Manson was in some way being protected by the authorities, by the FBI, the CIA, the police, someone like that. But that claim is only going to hold water if Manson turns out to be a remarkable individual in that respect and not just someone who was being treated the same as other parolee violators at that time. Mm. But I mean, I guess it does. It, just give, given the light of his history, as it said, he had spent almost half his life in prison. He had been committing crimes since he was very young and, and any time he was out of jail seemed to be committing more. So yeah, it, even, even if the system was overworked, he does seem, it does seem like he's someone you'd want to keep extra, an extra well, close eye on, but yes. who knows. Especially given what we know what happened next. Well, exactly, yes. Um, but And so as well as just sort of the idea that um, maybe the police were a bit slack at their job, he, he does he, he does get a bit more sinister and conspiratorial because he starts bringing in, bringing in the CIA and things like good old MKUltra. Yes, good old MKUltra. I'm, I'm about to say a fan of the show. Mm. Certainly a theme we keep coming back yeah. to. MKUltra being the CIA's project to... Basically, see how you could mess with people with drugs. I, 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 we must read it out one of these days. There's that list of things that they were investigating in MK Ultra, which is um, yeah, what, what can you do with drugs? And it's all like making people uh, more compliant, making people appear intoxicated, extending human life, making people soil themselves in a. Pre I can't, th th there's this laundry list of uh, things the, they wanted to the, see if they the, could do with the, pharmaceuticals. The old, the old brown note, but delivered in tablet mm. form. And we have to be MK Ultra did occur, unlike yep. say the Majestic Twelve documents, which were fakes. MK Ultra was an a, was a process that was being undertaken by federal authorities in the US. It was illegal. They performed experiments on unknown, uh, un unwitting yep. people without consent and so and on. And it was part they of the destroyed Cold War. a shitload of documents relating to it. Because they thought the Russians were doing similar experiments. And even if it turned out people were doubtful that these experiments would lead anywhere, the fear was if the Russians were successful, they would have an ability to implant agents in America you wouldn't be able to spot or tell. So they needed to do these experiments, that's what they claimed, to make sure that if they were successful, they would have the upper hand on the Ruskies. So what does this have to do with Manson? Well, a large part of the project of MKUltra was using drugs, in particular LSD, to break down a person's mind to the point that they'd become more susceptible to suggestion and possibly you know, the, the MKUltra had all these ideas about this Manchurian candidate sort of thing. They could program to do some, someone to do something without their being consciously aware of it and what have you. And people sort of look at Manson's followers and say, you know, how did, how did this guy take these? They, they were quite... They were quite sort of, you know, middle class, people living fairly comfortable lives, um, and yet they were, Manson was able to completely break them down and turn them into people who would kill at, at, you know, purely at his say-so. And he did it largely by keeping them bombed out of their skulls on LSD while he, he sort of moulded them in his image. And people sort of said, you know, the stuff Manson did to his followers is a lot like what the CIA was doing to people in MKUltra. And this was happening at the same time, and in kind of in the same part of America as well. Yes. Now, 
Admittedly, there are confounding factors here. Mm. Manson was apparently a very charismatic yep. individual, so his ability to tell people to do things and people wanting to please him, and he kind of fits that kind of charismatic individual mould. And also, it wasn't a secret that people were playing around with drugs to control people's minds. Yeah, it's the whole culture that was Timothy yeah. Leary and all that business. So people knew that taking things like LSD had an effect upon the brain, and people were experimenting both behind the scenes for government projects or in universities quite publicly with using drugs for a variety of different ends. So it's not out of the question that Manson would be aware that this stuff was going on and going, oh, well, if they're using LSD for these things, I can probably use it on the family as well. But, yeah, so, I mean, is there, is there any reason to think that he was involved with yeah. MKUltra? Yeah, I mean, I... Do, I, I is, is it not, coincidence, or is there is there a smoking gun? No, I, I'm not aware of anything, and I don't think there was a concrete theory. Is it, was he involved in MKUltra? Had he been a subject of MKUltra? Was the Manson family a sort of, a, you know, a testbed for MKUltra techniques or something? There's nothing sort of concrete. I, th I, think, it's, I think it's meant to be taken... Uh, together with the other fact that that someone upstairs seemed to be looking out for him, and so you've sort of got government project plus people in the government seem to be looking out for Manson, sort of stick the two together, and there seemed to be more of an implication that maybe he had something to do with it. But yeah, I, I'm not aware of any sort of a smoking gun. But maybe but, there might be. Well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I listened. I listened to the RNZ interview, um, and at the end, um, the interviewer sort of says you know it's sort of it's it's kind of ending on a bit of a downer note you know he he's he's being blocked from investigation at various turns and and what do we know and what does it tell us about today and so um mr o'neill ends the interview on on sort of a, a kind of a more of a hopeful note by pointing out the the case of the tex watson interview tapes Tex Watson being one of, of Manson's quote-unquote family and one of the people who did most of the killing during the, during the killings. Um, he was picked up in, in late 1969 um, and there, apparently his uh, conversations with his lawyer were taped. And on these tapes, he supposedly goes into sort of make, makes, makes basically a fairly detailed confession to the murders saying exactly what happened and when and who and how. Um, now these tapes were his confession to his lawyer, so they were sort of covered by lawyer confidentiality and what have you. They were never released. O'Neill himself didn't wasn't aware they existed until apparently 2008, um, when he started trying to get you know because obviously Ted Watson is he dead? I don't know. Manson's dead. Um, but I just assume so. Mm. Yeah. But that certainly the lawyer who originally recorded those tapes uh, died some time ago, uh, so they were owned by the law firm now, and he thought, you know, may maybe these tapes, because it's coming straight from this guy's mouth, um, maybe that would actually, you know, that's the closest we're going to get to knowing the real truth of what, what was going on there. So he went to the law firm and said, hey, I'm a journalist. Want to give me some recordings that you made confidentially with one of your clients back in the late 60s? And they obviously said, no, bugger off. Um, so then he told the police and the Los Angeles district attorney's office about that because they didn't know about these tapes either. He said to them, look, hey, guys. The, the, a taped confession of um, Tex Watson exists out there. Surely you guys have enough pull to get your hands on. And they said, and they actually, went, yes, yeah. yes, actually, we do want to see these things. And they also said to 
to O'Neill, once we get the tapes, we will share the information with you. And so in 2013, they sued the law firm in question to get access to the tapes of the confession. They got access to the tapes of the confession. And of course, naturally, they then shared the information with O'Neill, didn't they? Yes, no, of course they did not. So, um, so yeah, I mean, O'Neill takes this to mean they got the tapes, they listened to them, whatever was on the tapes made them want to no longer share that information, you know, that they thought what's on here cannot be made public, so therefore we won't share it uh, with Ted O'Neill. I mean, it's possible they were lying their asses off to begin with and they never intended to make them public because they... That's the sort of thing they do. Yes, they might know. Go, oh, it's quite convenient to have a journalist supporting mm. us in this motion, but we're not going to give him the information whatsoever. Yes, because I mean, I understand. Like he knew, he knew who had the tapes, so he, he sort of went to the went to the authorities and said, "These tapes exist. Share them with me, and I'll tell you who to sue to get them." And and so it's possible they would have said anything to get their hands on the tapes. But oh, we don't know. But I mean, so, so that's 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 his note for the future that maybe this book comes out, uh, maybe it will inspire more journalists to start looking into this more closely, maybe it'll put pressure on the authorities, maybe one day these tapes will be released, and maybe they will tell us what really happened with the Charles Manson um, murders and, and the general uh, goings-on around his cult, um, and maybe that will be different from what we've been led to believe so far. Although I suppose the worry is, if the tapes confirm the official theory, you can always go, well, yeah, but Tex, Tex, didn't, still, yeah, Tex yeah. didn't actually know what was really going on there. I mean, he, was, he wasn't Charles Manson. Uh, he was just told by Manson what was going on. So you can kind of see a rationale as to why you also might not release the tapes to the journalists in question by going, well, if you're so dead set to show there's a government connection between Manson and the murders, the fear is no amount of evidence is going to mm. dissuade you of that. And what you'll have is a new corpus of evidence that you'll be reading into in the same way that Charles Manson read into How to Scout It. Mm. Nice full circle there. You um, know what I mean? I always like to swivel. Yes. So, I mean, possibly the clever thing to do would have been to actually read through the entire book um, before we did this episode, but I'm not sure where it's available at the moment. I, I, I was One annoying thing was, though, we had a few articles about the book, plus this Radio New Zealand interview. One of the reviews of the book mentions that the book brings in the Kennedy assassination and makes it sound like it's is a sort of a fairly natural connection between the two cases and doesn't say any further than that. And I don't know how... I'd, I'd so what you're saying, Josh, is we have to do a sequel to this we particular... Might. We might actually have to do some first research of, like, primary sources instead of secondary stuff. Like Right, that. you heard it here. Mm. There's go this is just part one of what's going to be... <sighs> Wait a minute, did I just volunteer to read a book? You did. Shit. I, I like to set things up this way. Yep. Anyway, so, I mean, that's uh, Mr. O'Neill, he, he tells a good story. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a convincing narrative. I found about the RNZ mm. interview. He just tells the story so well. Mm. And I, I mean, okay, so I suppose you should ask, what do you think of this theory on the face of it? I mean, the way he tells it, it certainly sounds convincing. Uh, it, it, like, you, you wonder, could it be that he's sort of focusing on these, these particular angles? You know, why, why did Manson never get picked up for his numerous parole violations? And, and sort of p picking out elements and just weaving them to get, weaving these selected ones together to make a story that fits together so nicely. Um, though I certainly wouldn't write it off. 
Uh, it's certainly, I mean, if, if if there are genuine ties to MKUltra, we know how secretive the government was around that. We know how many records were, well, we don't know exactly how many records were destroyed because we, they were destroyed, but we know records were destroyed. So there could be, you know, th th there is a history of secrecy in this area. So, I mean, if you can tie the two together, there's, there's sort of, there, there's a lot that's sort of contingent. There's a whole bunch of things which, if you can tie them together, all fit together nicely, but 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 actually, can you? I mean, I suppose, to my mind, what's really interesting about this particular hypothesis is that it kind of falls into the 9-11 spectrum of theories between the made-it-happen-on-purpose or me-hop hypotheses and the let-it-happen-on-purpose or let-it-happen-on-accident hypotheses, the Lee-hop ones. And the Lee-hop theories have always fascinated me because it does seem to be fairly good evidence that organizations like the CIA and the FBI actually did have sufficient information about the members of Al-Qaeda, if you take it that Al-Qaeda was responsible for the destruction of the Twin Towers, the attack upon the Pentagon, and the attempted attack upon the White House. It does seem that they've got all of... It did seem that there was enough evidence at the time that they probably could have stopped the event. And maybe the Manson thing isn't necessarily the MKUltra thing, is the fact that actually Manson was a known criminal engaging in criminal behavior after getting out of jail in 1967 and agencies completely failed to stop a yeah. crime that they could have stopped because they should have been watching it. Yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look at all this and say, yeah, it should have been easy to prevent this from ever happening in the first yeah. place, and the fact that we didn't prevent this in the first place, therefore, hints at something darker. But yeah, and maybe, you, maybe and, it does, and maybe sometimes it you get yeah. cover-ups after the fact mm. to make organisations look squeaky clean when they're not. So that's why I find fascinating about the Lee Hop hypotheses, is that even if you think that 9-11 was an outside job committed by Al-Qaeda, you can still go, those agencies had the ability to know more, and was it institutional failings which have been covered up, or were they simply not doing their jobs properly? Mm. So was it a structural issue which allowed the crime to be committed, or was it a case of people who should have been doing things go, ah, deal with that paperwork tomorrow. Mm. Tomorrow, and then boom. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, the uh, that the major conspiracy theory about the Oklahoma City bombing, the one that says that McVeigh was actually operating under orders by the BATF, normally goes, well, you know, the BATF thought he was going to perform the attack on this day, and they would swoop in and they would stop him, thus allowing them to show that they weren't actually messing things up post-Waco, and McVeigh basically acts a day in advance, thus destroying the BATF's plan, which then means the BATF has to cover up what really happened. I'm not endorsing that particular conspiracy theory, but it's a really interesting hypothesis about mm. about the Oklahoma City bombings. Which we, we've, we've talked about the Oklahoma City bombings. But I don't think we've ever no, we've done talked, an episode. No, no. Uh, there was, there was the, the Kenneth Michael Trent you story, the dude we, yeah. I mean, we did ages yeah. ago about the guy who got picked up. Uh, because seemingly because he looked almost exactly like one of McVeigh's accomplices and then died mysteriously in prison, cough, Epstein, cough. I should actually cough when I said that because I haven't got a cold and I've been suppressing a cough for ages. But anyway, we're, we're, we're wandering a little bit far afield at although, the moment. Which although is... what's important about this is then, of course, the seminal article in my discipline of the philosophy of conspiracy theory is Brian Keeley's Of Conspiracy 
fairies, and he may well be listening to this episode as he hears his name being read out in my slightly husky voice, because I also am slightly under the weather. And Brian published that piece in 1999, which of course is pre-9-11. And so the conspiracy theory that he references and talks through is the Oklahoma City bombings, because that was the big conspiracy theory pre-9-11, which is just quite fascinating. If Brian had published his paper only two years later, his choice of example probably would have been very different. Now, that doesn't necessarily change the analysis. It's just interesting that how a once really prominent conspiracy theory has been almost completely wiped off the map by another one. So I think I think that's it for this episode. Given that we've 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 I think done our dash on Manson and are now taking a whistle stop through other American conspiracy theories. So uh, although it is a promissory note, we're going to do another mm, ep- yep. episode on Manson. We're going to do an episode on Oklahoma City bombings, which I've now said there's more than one. Yep. You, heard, you heard it here first. That, that's going to be the podcaster's guide to Oklahoma City bombing conspiracies from now on. Nothing but Oklahoma. Every, yeah. Eventually. We're going to find every bomb that's ever gone off, we're going to explain. Yeah, we're going to end up, I think, putting on a full production of Oklahoma the Musical. With a lot of bombs. Mm. A lot of bombs. Uh, but until then, until that happy day, uh, I think it's time to let you find people go about your business. and then. Although, not, not the patrons. Not the you're patrons, not, you're no. not off the hook, because patrons, they, they are legally obliged to listen to the patron bonus episode. Now, they can listen to it before this episode or afterwards, Although it makes no sense to listen to it before Not really. this episode. Certainly the setup bit isn't What they sense. are legally obliged to listen to this week is an update on that Amy Robach Epstein story about ABC. We're going to be talking about Russia, the UK, and election interference. We've got an update on that sonic weapon that was apparently being used against the US Embassy in Cuba. There is, of course, the requisite Trump Little information. Bit of and there's also a bit of information about Trump's son, Don Jr., and it's a doozy. Mm. So if you want to know about that, uh, you better become a patron of ours if you're not already. And, you can and then do you'll be legally required mm. to listen to the patron bonus episode as well. You can do that by going to patreon.com and looking for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. Or if you really want to, you could go to uh, conspiracism.podbean.com, which is where this website is sort of initially hosted. And they have their own patronage system there as well. You could also go to a crossroad and bury an item that you love to summon a crossroad demon to get access to the podcast. But that does also require giving up your soul. So it's probably mm. just easier probably to spend. Probably easier to go to Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. A, do- yeah. a dollar a month is actually probably worth less than your soul. Probably. Probably. Yeah. No promises. Uh, so I think that's all we have to say for this week. Um, so goodbye. 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 been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy starring josh addison and dr mr extended which is written researched, recorded and produced by josh and m you can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its podbean or patreon campaigns and if you need to get in contact with either josh or m you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their twitter accounts mikey fluids and conspiracism
And remember, Soylent Green is meeples.